Hey, good evening, everybody. My name's Lee Travaskis. So I'm uh, the principal here at Trinity College, Queensland. You can all hear me, but we actually have uh, four different sites this is being streamed to at the moment in Queensland. So Mission Beach, North Queensland, Townsville, Cairns, Mackay. I don't think we know exact numbers here, so you can say hello. They're going to be texting in any questions, so there'll be a good time for questions later uh, for, for Sam here. In terms of what Trinity Unplugged is, we started this as a way of, one, providing some sort of resource or a resource for people in the local church who would like access to academics. That's the unplugged bit. You're not paying to be in a course, right? That costs a lot of money. Uh, you, but, but you'll see, for example, Sam speak later. And the idea is you'll see him speak or hear him speak. And I hope you'll realise it actually does take a bit of reading and study to be able to do this, to proclaim, say, the gospel or to understand the Bible it takes training and work. And so what we're hoping at these Trinity Unplugs, on the one hand, to keep drip feeding from academics, uh, ways of reading the Bible, applying it to life, encouraging you in how you would share your faith, but also we hope that you'll sort of develop an appetite for further study, either within your church or perhaps lead study groups or, or to, to do something like that. In a moment, I will introduce Sam, but there are two, uh, two things that we'd like to propose to you to start with or to offer you. Uh, the first one is a, uh, a new resource we're offering. It's called uh, Trinity Untapped. I keep saying Trinity Untapped. We don't actually have that on a brochure or anything yet, Trinity Untapped. On tap is important. So actually, Sam brews beer. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he has tapped beer at his house, and he never charges me for it. Uh, and that's what Trinity on tap should be like. And what Trinity on tap will be, at a very early stage, what I'm showing you now, that cannot leave the building tonight uh, because it's a draft. Paul Jones, our lecturer in Old Testament and homiletics. Bit of a shout. That's my chair there, mate. And... Uh, he started the first one, and it's, it's a couple of things together. So it's a booklet that I'll leave a few of these around tonight. I'll get rid of this pen. Um, that pretty much introduces you or leads you through a way of reading the Old Testament. This one does. There'll be one for the New Testament. There'll be one for theology. There'll be even one for preaching. But these things are designed either to use yourself or to use in a growth group. So if you're a Bible study or a growth group, you're starting to think, well, we just keep on doing more and more comprehension questions, you know, as uh, just doing your head in. But this is a way of, I think, being a, a more stimulating way of studying the Bible, where Paul in this one introduces you to, well, what is the Old Testament? How should it be read? What are the challenges? And alongside of that, he's put together 15 podcast talks that go with it. Now, the pod... 21, 15 minutes, right? <laughs> they sit alongside them on their own. They stand alone. So you could listen to them in the car on your way to work. Remember, this is all on tap, like, like uh, Sam's beer. It's free. And, uh, and so this is something you can listen to on your own, or it sits alongside this. If you're doing a study group, you'd say, well, let's listen to the 15-minute podcast on your way to the group or in the group. Let's just have a look at this study and what it means, so on. Um, so can I invite you tonight, it's free, so I'm not trying to sell you something, okay? Um, 
have a look at these. There'll be a few of them lying around. And then on the front counter out here, you can give us your details. If you would like us, when this is published early next year, there'll be more, so there'll be a New Testament one and so on. You can sign up to have that posted to you and there'll be a link uh, to the podcast. Um, so th that's just a way, in our way, we think this is upskilling the grassroots of the church in reading scripture, where we meet the remembered Christ of scripture, and for upskilling us in the way we live and talk about Jesus. Um, so that's the first one, Trinity on tap. Just before, uh, another couple of things we've given you there on your, your seats. The first is Trinity News. So we put these out biannually, oh, not biannually, we put two out a year, sorry. Uh, that's supposed to give you just some information about the college, but the, we also include articles that you might want to read. You should be able to pick up one of these and sit down and have a coffee, tea, cordial for some of the guys sitting up the back. And, and just sort of feel as you're reading, you're learning. So it should be an accessible way to think more deeply about the historic Christian faith. So I'd encourage you to take one of those with you. The other thing we want to talk about here, and I'm not going to, but Simon Gomesall. Would you like to come out, Simon? Does anyone remember Barry Gomesall, the grasshopper? Particularly people from New South Wales. The, the, the referee from uh, the state of origins. Blood. The same blood, this bloke. He looks much more handsome than uh, Barry Gomesall. I still can't stand Barry Gomesall because I'm from New South Wales. I'm going to hand it over to Simon, who's our lecturer in historical and contemporary mission, just to talk about another program called Activate. Thanks, Lee. Can I grab that um, brochure for a sec? Thank you. Um, evening, everyone. So Simon's my name. Uh, I am distantly related to the grasshopper, Barry Gomesall. Thank you, Lee, for, for pointing that out to everyone. Uh, but I do want to tell you about Activate, which is, we're, calling it, we're still calling it our gap year program. Like all new things, it's having a bit of an identity crisis because we want to actually open it up to people who aren't just doing a gap year, but those who are slightly older. So if you're in the young adult category, this could well relate to you. It's a, a program that Trinity College offers. It allows students to do a diploma of ministry in one year. Um, but also do a number of other, uh, engage with a number of other experiences that's going to deepen their discipleship and grow their faith. Um, and so in addition to, to the, the formal theological study, you also get to do, for example, a, a barista course, a, a safe driving course, um, a first aid course, a mental health first aid course, some time management, um, uh, skill development, um, a number of things. We, we work with the homeless in the local area. We take the students overseas to Thailand for a, a missions immersion uh, trip as well. So it's a very deep and rich experience. Everything really is designed to help students take their theological study and contextualize that so that they're better able to integrate it into the fabric of, uh, of their life. So if you know a young person who might be interested in this program, if you are a young person and you're interested in this program, please uh, grab this brochure, have a look, come and talk to me afterwards or get in touch with the college in the days following tonight and we'd, we'd love to talk to you more about it. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Now, uh, Sam Chen, the f we've known each other probably for 20 years, I guess. Yeah. One of the funniest stories Sam's ever told me, or interesting stories, as someone who loves cricket, was when his parents moved here from Hong Kong in the late 60s. Yeah, we moved from Hong Kong to Australia in the 60s, yep. This isn't the interview yet. Just okay, the sure, yeah. all right. But, <laughs> so you think, is that still white Australia policy then? I, it was, I'm not okay. sure how they I snuck in. I don't know in. how they got here. Yeah. But the, uh, they, they moved to Adelaide 
and they're living in a house. So your dad is also a medical, he's a GP, right? Radiologist. Radiologist. Yep. Um, so they're living in Adelaide and this older woman living next door has said, hey, I notice you've got two little kid, two little boys running around. My, us my husband uh, was a famous cricketer, if you'd like to bring him over sometime. And didn't she, she's like pushing him off from Hong Kong, like, eh, yeah, okay, great, you know, pushing him off. Are you living next door to Don Bradman? <laughs> almost, almost, yeah, yeah. Don, Don Bradman was their friend and would always come yeah. over afternoon tea. Yeah, and they'd say, hey, do you want to come over and meet Don Bradman? No, no, and we go, Don who? Don who? <laughs> You're killing the story. Oh. The, the, the thing is about Sam, what I enjoy about Sam, and we're close. I remember we used to swim laps in Sydney. I've never swum, I always swum laps in boardies. I just came from a town in Australia where no one would be seen dead in speedos. And I remember after months of swimming, one night I rang you up and I said, hey Sam, I'm going to wear speedos the next day. And you, you were... He felt safe after wearing speedos in front of me doing laps at a pool. Yeah, so. that's right. Made a big, makes a big difference. Mm. But um, <laughs> I'm hoping, uh, I've brought some of my kids along tonight. Uh, I'm hoping Unplugged's a place where people would feel free to do that with their older high school kids. And one of the things that I think Sam models for me is a person who you'd say is heavy on pop culture. Um, here, I remember you were an early adopter of blogging and you, you have a blog now called, what's it called? Espresso Theology. Espresso Theology. He was an early adopter of, uh, of beer brewing when it became something more common in Australia, so the, hence the tapped uh, beer. Uh, and then... Karav Magar, does anyone know about this Israeli self-defense? That is a Karav Magar especially, he could kill you. Um, uh, cycling, right into the Lycra, all that sort of stuff. And now you're riding motorbikes. And then he's, a, he's also a medical practitioner. So you're still doing a day or two a week, knife in the person, or anything else you do as a practitioner. Yeah. See, and that always... That always works well in a context like this if you're the medical practitioner, even though they deal with some, some disgusting stuff. So as a doctor, I'm up here, from here up, and not that area. That's my area for being a doctor, right? Nothing disgusting. Yeah, no, but if I, I worked in cow science and it means nothing. Like, so no, it's got no purchase. So Sam works like that, and I think that's very important then for his other line of work, which is with City Bible Forum, and I'd like to thank them for accommodating us in using Sam like this tonight, um, that he's done a PhD in theology, and I like how it seems as though when I'm talking with Sam, in fact, he told me recently, he's, you've gone more heavy on reading pop or non-theological literature. We don't want to give that message too much here, but you can talk about why later. In fact, why is it? Uh, well, when I teach at a Bible college, Students would always ask you, have you read this book? Have you read this book? Have you read this book? So I had to know the whole canon of Christian literature. But now I'm an evangelist. I guess you don't know. Um, Non-Christians always ask me, have you read this book? Have you read this book? Have you read this book? So I'm finding I need to read the whole canon of non-Christian pop literature. So the top 10 you know, in New York, the top 10 in London, the top 10 in Sydney, listen to their podcasts, read their stuff, watch their stuff. Okay. Well, I, like, I, I think I just, I just value the way... Uh, Sam can keep bringing this, what is the, our faith, right alongside the life, of life in the world today. And I'd say, unless you're like me, uh, well, I, I assume there'd be a lot of people like me who struggle with faith at times. It's very easy to think, well, 
is this fairyology? Is this real? And Sam is one of those people that I trust and go to to think about. I'm always feeling encouraged by him when I have to address those questions. And that's why we'll continue to invite Sam along here. Do you want to tell us anything else about your work, family, current challenges in life? Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't need that. So you forget. Oh, it's not, it's only for the streaming. Do you need that? About the back. It's for the overflow room. The overflow room. Yeah. There's an overflow room. Because apparently people... But I've got a mic. <laughs> I've got right. a signal coming from here and a signal coming from here. So, am I on? Yeah. So, okay. don't need the, the ice cream. Alright. Alright, so, so just quickly, so in case you're wondering, I was born in Hong Kong. My parents moved to Australia when I was just six months old. Two years in Darwin, six years in Adelaide, almost the rest of my life in Sydney. I studied medicine, worked as a doctor for four years, just happened to have a year free. So I thought, you know what, I've studied so much about the body, but I know so little about the Bible. Why don't I just do one year in a Bible college, do one of those one-year certificate things, go back to working as a doctor. That led to mission creep, so one-year certificate became a three-year bachelor degree. That became a two-year master's degree in Chicago. That became a five-year PhD in Chicago. Came back to Sydney, started teaching for about 10 years. Went back to medicine, uh, and then now I'm with City Bible Forum doing Christian ministry again. So the lesson there is this is my fourth career. And if, so if all else fails, you can always go to City Bible Forum. They'll employ you. They will take you. <laughs> I still remember in my second year of medicine, the exams were so hard. I thought, I can't learn this. I'm going to fail. I thought, you know what? If all else fails, I can go into Christian ministry. <laughs> and now I realise when that fails, there's City Bible Forum. <laughs> and so I work with them for four days a week as a public speaker, as a public evangelist. I work one day a week still as a doctor. I work as a surgical assistant. You're wondering, what is a surgical assistant? You, if you go for an operation in the private hospitals, you get three bills, one from the surgeon, you think, fair enough. One from the anaesthetist, fair enough. And you think, who's this bozo sending me a third bill? <laughs> that is me, the surgical assistant. Um, so my most important job is to say hi to you before you fall asleep. Hi, my, my name is Sam, and you'll be getting a bill from me in two weeks' time. <laughs> The other dynamics, the nurses look at the surgeon and think, yeah, I can see how that took six years of med school. They look at the anaesthetist, yeah, I can see how that took six years of med school. And then they see me just holding the leg and think, how on earth does that take six years of med school? A trained monkey can do what he does. But a funny thing just happened about two or three months ago. I went for a knee operation myself. And being a doctor, they give you professional courtesy. They let you go first, and therefore you don't have to fast as long. You get done, you go home before lunch. So we're all, I'm lying in the bed in all my patient gear, and then the surgeon's there, the anaesthetist is there, all the nurses are lined up, we're just waiting. And we're going, where is the assistant? And they go, and they go, oh, you know, there he is. Uh, and the surgeon goes, no, 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 look, I've got someone to cover for today. I knew Sam wasn't available. Half an hour later, and they all look at me and go, you know what you're going to have to do? Oh, okay, so I had to get out of my patient gear, put my doctor gear on, work the whole shift, fasted, kneel by mouth, and then jump into bed at the end of the shift. And then, and, and then they deliberately kept me awake while they tried out all these drugs on me. And they videoed me to see what it would do to me. Like, and, and that's the last thing I remember was I went to sleep. It was a very unpleasant way to fall asleep. Well, I think I might hand over to Sam. But let me just pray and acknowledge uh, the, the, the reason we're here. 
um, that, that we are talking about things we wish we knew when talking to friends about Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, we uh, thank you for the encouragement it is to be with so many people who do believe in you. And uh, we thank you for the freedom of being in a country where we can have events like this and not fear for our freedom. Uh, we pray for Sam as he speaks tonight and we would ask that uh, we would go away encouraged and having clarity for those of us who doubt and may be here just to try to understand why they would continue to believe, that they would go away encouraged. Amen. Well, the other thing is I'm Asian and I'm short, so everywhere I go I have to stand on something because um, I can't actually see the back half of the room. So the front half, you're wondering why is he standing on something? Well, the back half of the room actually cannot see me unless I stand on something like this. Uh, just last year, I was catching a flight. It was a long flight from Boston to Melbourne and the flight was taking off like at one in the morning. And so we're all on the plane, we're tired, and then there's a delay, there's something wrong with the engine. So now we're stuck on the plane at the gate for like two hours. Everyone drifts off to sleep, and suddenly they make that announcement on the plane, is there a doctor on the plane? <laughs> and I, I, I love it when that happens. I buzz, yes, 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 because usually it's nothing. Someone's hurt a knee, someone's got a headache, and just by turning up, they give you a bottle of wine. I go, okay. <laughs> So I go, yes, 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 yes. And so I go, I'm a doctor. I go, oh, well, well, yeah, yeah, great, we need you. So they take me to this, um, to somewhere where they, they do all the food. And, but this time it's for real. There's a guy lying down, passed out, having a heart attack. But fortunately for me, two other doctors had got there first. <laughs> and, and they're at the head of the patient. And I'm stuck at the feet of the patient. And I say to the flight attendants, oh, looks like these guys got it under control. They go, no, 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 stay. We don't know. Like, you, you, we may need you. Stay here. And there's actually nothing you can do. So now you're helpless. You're at the feet. You can't get to the, the action end. And you're just standing there feeling like a goose in everyone's way because there's nothing you can do. And truth be told, anyone medical out there, you know there's actually nothing you can do even if you're at the other end. All you're trying to do is um, get keep the patient alive until the emergency teams can come, get them off the plane, get them to the hospital, and that's when you can do something in the hospital. That's actually nothing you can do. But this guy who was at the head, it looked like he had it all under control. He goes, get me a stethoscope. So they get him a stethoscope. <laughs> get me a blood pressure reading. And somehow there's a blood pressure machine on the plane. Get me an oxygen reading. And they have an oxygen monitor on the plane. And then he's taking a full history from the patient's wife, and then, and then um, he's, he gets, he's listening, he's taking recordings. I thought, wow, this guy's amazing. He keeps this up for 15 minutes. And the emergency team finally comes, get the patient off the plane, everything's all right. We find out later, everything's all right. Yes, it was a heart attack, but everything's all right. So I went to the guy and I said, well played. You did well. You earned your bottle of wine. Now... <laughs> What sort of doctor are you? And he looks at me sheepishly and says, well, actually, I'm just an allergist. And I'm like, whoa! <laughs> you did so well. Again, well played. And that's the whole problem. As a doctor, often on a plane, when these things happen, there is no rule book. We're not trained to do any of these things. We have to make it up as we go. And we don't even know if we're doing the right thing. And evangelism is like that, isn't it, as a Christian? <laughs> We're just making it up. There is no rule book. There is no textbook. And yet, 
People tell us you need to tell your friends about Jesus. It just makes us feel guilty for not doing it, but disempowered when we try because it doesn't usually go well. So welcome to tonight. Tonight the talk is how to tell your friends about Jesus. It's actually part two. I did a very similar talk last year. We'll call it part one. So I'm assuming a lot of common ground from last year, but if you weren't here last year, that's all right. You'll pick it up. But I'm launching from a lot of the stuff I did last year as well. So if you hear stuff you heard before, that's okay. We'll be launching from that into new material. I'm going to go for about 40, 50 minutes, and then we'll open up for question time, and you can ask me any question you want, and I'll do my best to answer it. So tonight I'm going to give us stuff to put in the toolkit on how we can tell our friends about Jesus, part two. So the first thing to put in the toolkit is listen. And I know I said something very similar last year, but this time we're going to take it uh, up another notch. So these days, I have to catch a lot of Uber to go places. And Uber's fantastic because the drivers are friendly, the cars are clean. You just push a button on your app and boom, the car turns up. But the trouble with Uber is that at the end of the ride, the driver rates you as well. And if you want a five-star rating, the best thing is to sit in the front seat and make conversation. And for me, it's like a slow-moving train wreck because I know exactly where the conversation is going to go. Because I will ask them the questions they've been asked a thousand times before. How long have you been doing Uber? What did you do before? Do you like Uber? And then they will say to you, what do you do for work? I think, oh, I hate this moment. And I say, I'm in full-time professional Christian ministry. I tell people about Jesus from the Bible. And it's awkward now. There's this stunned silence. So what I do is I throw the question back at them. I say, do you have a faith? Because it's a very safe question because I'm asking for a descriptive answer. We're not talking about values or prescription. And since then, other people have told me they're even safer questions to ask. So do you have a faith? Or maybe do you have a faith background? Or what religion did your parents raise you with? And that's actually quite a safe question to ask. And I have now found, more often than not, when I go on an Uber, they will answer, I was raised Catholic, but I don't believe anymore, but I still go to church once or twice a year to keep my parents happy. But in the end, I think all religions are the same, and in the end, it's all about being spiritual and making a difference. I hear that all the time. So that means the majority of the Australians out there aren't your liberal, secular atheists. They're actually usually de-churched or, or unchurched people, people who've had some experience with religion. And even though they, they are atheists, that's when you go, wow, tell me more about that. Just today I caught a taxi ride and the driver eventually, I found out, was a Muslim from Turkey. So I go, wow, tell me more about that. How do you worship? What happens in the mosque? What does the imam say? How do you pray? And bit by bit, you get them feeling safe. Because this guy was very guarded at first. Like, he didn't feel safe telling me about Islam. And a lot of people are like that. They actually don't feel safe talking about their atheism or their Buddhism or their Catholic background. But you make them feel safe and you listen. Now, I have a friend who does counselling. His name is uh, James Veltmeyer. And he told me, as 
trained counsellors, counsellors are told there are three sorts of listening when you listen. The first way to listen is you're listening, but you're not really listening. You're just waiting for your turn to talk. <laughs> the second sort of listening is you're listening, but you're just waiting to find out ways to tell them they're wrong, so to argue against them. But really, the third sort of listening is the listening we're trying to do and that counsellors do. And that's where you just listen. And when they stop talking, James tells me what you do as a counsellor is you just get a cup of water and you put it in your mouth and start drinking, signalling to the other person, buddy, you've got to keep talking because I'm not going to do any talking. And I thought, oh, I remember when I was seeing a counsellor that's what she used to do to me. <laughs> I would finish talking and I would want her professional opinion and she would just start taking a drink from her cup. And I thought, oh, I so know what you're doing. <laughs> but I couldn't stop talking. It would just make me talk and talk and talk. And this little voice in my head would always say, shut up. You're giving her way too much information. Now she knows you're crazy. <laughs> But what we do is we just keep listening and listening and listening. And as we're listening, we're trying to do three things. We're trying to hear, understand, and feel. Hear, understand, feel. And I think I told you guys last time I was here that, guys, this is everything you were taught in premarital counselling. Remember? So when you have a fight with your wife, you just have to hear, understand, and feel. So when your wife says, you're not doing the dishes, you just got to say, oh, from what I hear you saying, and just repeat her words back to her, I'm not doing the dishes. Oh, I understand, and hear you summarize her words to show that you're not just repeating her words back at her. You are doing some higher analytical synthetic thought. So I understand I'm not doing my share of the housework. Oh, that must make you feel. And you just got to guess an emotion. And it's usually anger. Oh, that must make you feel angry. And tick, just like that, conflict resolved. And my wife caught me giving this advice to my guy friends and she said, oh, if I ever catch you doing that to me. And I said, oh, from what I hear you say. <laughs> so last year I shared with you how I, I was catching a plane to Adelaide. It's like, it's almost a three hour flight. And before, so as I get, get into my seat, before I could get my headphones into my ears, which is the international symbol for do not talk to me, this guy starts talking to me. I think, oh, I hate it when this happens because it only goes in one direction. So he goes, are you going for business or pleasure? I go, work. <laughs> and it's quiet, it's quiet. Okay, so I have to reciprocate. I go, why are you going to Adelaide? And he goes, I'm actually going back home. I was in Sydney, oh, okay, for work. He goes, yes, for work. And I go, what was your work? He goes, well, I had to give a talk to doctors uh, for postgraduate education on the physics of MRI scanners. And I thought, oh, I've done that course. Now we have something in common. <laughs> so we talk, and he goes, okay, well, why are you going to Adelaide? And, you know, I think it's just... 
it's like a band-aid. Just rip it off quickly. I go, okay, I'm in professional Christian ministry. I'm going there to give a talk about Jesus from the Bible. <laughs> Silence. Then I think, okay, I'll be a hypocrite if I don't do this. I go, do you have a faith? And then he said, well, when I was a teenager in South Africa, I checked out Christianity and that's when I found it was a front for hate crimes against gay people. And I went, wow, tell me about that. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about your journey. But did you always think that? How did you discover that? And I got him talking and talking and talking and talking and monologuing for 90 minutes. <laughs> and remember, if you ask someone what they did on the weekend, social convention is after a while they have to ask you, well, what did you do on the weekend? And if you let them go for one minute, convention is they need to give you one minute. But if you can get them going for 10 minutes, come a convention is they need to give you 10 minutes. So I let him go and go and go for 90 minute monologue. And at the end, I said, oh, from what I hear you saying, I understand you. That must make you feel angry. Um, and your objections against Christianity are one, it's homophobic. Two, all religions are the same anyway. And three, it's anti-scientific. And then I said, would you like me to respond? He said, yes. So he let me monologue for the next 60 minutes until the plane landed. And when I landed, he said, thank you so much. You made that flight go so quickly. <laughs> and I thought, oh, not for me, it didn't. <laughs> but that's the, that's the first tip, to listen and, and listen and get them talking, talking, and genuinely listen. Hear, understand, and then feel the emotion and then at least we know where they're coming from and then how we can make our responses. So number one tip, when it comes to evangelism, learn to listen. Number two, tell a story about Jesus. I mentioned this last year, but I'm taking it a little bit further this time. So I was in Melbourne. I catch an Uber ride. It always goes the same direction. I go, she goes, oh, I'm taking you to an Afghani restaurant. What's the occasion? I'm in professional Christian ministry. I'm there to give a public talk about Jesus from the Bible. <laughs> Stunned silence. Okay, okay. Well, do you have a faith? And she said, well, I was raised Catholic, but I don't believe anymore. I go once or twice a year to keep my parents happy. But in the end, all religions are the same. Uh, it's all about being spiritual, being good, and making a difference. And then I said, wow, tell me more. So I got to hear about her story, how she loves to explore beauty. She loves sunsets. She loves going to the beach. And after a while, there's silence. And then she says, well, tell me about you. Do you have family? I go, yeah, I'm married. I've got three kids. And then she's doing all the adding up. She goes, wow. How old are you? I said, well, I'm actually way older than I look. I'm 50, 51, 52. She goes, wow, is that all the clean living? And I said, no, it's not all the clean living. In fact, I am a brewer. She, wow, you can be in Christian ministry and brew beer. And I said, wow, yes, let me tell you a story about Jesus. And so I have many stories I like to take people to. But one of my recent favourite ones is the one of Jesus turning 
water into wine at Cana. So I said, well, let me tell you a story about Jesus. So I said, Jesus was at a wedding. They ran out of wine. And in the original Greek, it says they ran out of wine because the guests were drunk. They had drunk way too much. That's why they had run out of wine. Christians don't know what to do with that. That's why we soften the translation in English. We say, the guests have had enough. But the Greek says they were drunk. And then Jesus gives them more wine, too much more wine, and too much more good wine. And I, and I said to her, you know, if Jesus was around today, he would fail his responsible server of alcohol license. <laughs> like, he'll be revoked. So I said to her, why would Jesus do that? I said, well, part of the answer is he's trying to show us what life or Jesus will be like, both now and the life to come. And so if you think by following Jesus, we will miss out. No, it's the opposite. By not following Jesus, we will miss out. And by not having Jesus, things like this will end up destroying us or we destroy them. But with Jesus, this is the image of what life will be like with Jesus, both now and the life to come. And so that got us talking about Jesus. And I said to her, you like beauty? You like sunsets? I said, where do you think that comes from? I mean, what is beauty? If we're just atoms and molecules, show me an atom of beauty. What is beauty? Beauty is something that we get because there's a beautiful creator. There's a design. There's a beauty. So that gets her talking. And then finally she says, what? Well, Tell me about grace. So I explain what grace is. And then she says, where can I learn about Jesus? So then I'm able to take her to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And that was the 40-minute uh, Uber ride. And it was all over way too quickly. Uh, but that's, that's something put in the toolkit because I had listened to her first. I knew where she was coming from, that she was after beauty, grace, sunsets, beaches i can tell her story about jesus and basically show how jesus is actually the person she's looking for even though she doesn't know it yet the third thing to put in our toolkit is this manger cross king so if we want a neat summary of the gospel, I'm getting this from Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York, who tells me he got it from Simon Gattacol, a New Testament scholar. If we want a quick summary of what Christians believe, we've just got to think of these three things. Manger, cross, king. Manger reminds us to say that Jesus came to us as a human and lived 2,000 years ago on this earth. Cross reminds us to say that Jesus dies on a cross in our place, and somehow that takes away our sin, guilt, and shame. King reminds us to say, one day Jesus is going to come again and set up a physical kingdom here on earth. And so we want to be nerdy and theological. Really, the three great theological truths we're trying to communicate here are one, the incarnation. Jesus became a human, our flesh and blood. Cross, we're mentioning the atonement, that Jesus dies in our place and that takes away our sin, guilt and shame. And King tells us there will be a restoration, a renewal, a rebirth of creation. And this juggles the tensions in the Christian gospel that we have an individual decision to make, but a corporate responsibility, we've joined a team. 
that there's a spiritual aspect to Christianity, but there's a physical aspect that still really, really matters. Um, and the whole idea that we're saved, but we still have something to worry about each day, a purpose to live. We're bringing Jesus' love, mercy and justice on this planet. So what I do is whenever people ask me a question, no matter what they ask, I answer it with this. So last year, I was catching a plane. So you see where this is going. This time, I managed to get the international symbol for do not talk to me on the headphones. So I'm sitting on the plane with my noise-canceling headphones. But the flight attendant comes with a trolley, with the drinks and the snacks, and it's rude to talk to them with your headphones on. So I take the headphones off to be polite. And then, would you like some drinks, some snacks? I go, sure. And I had brought my own bag of snacks, being Asian. You know, you're cheap and you're, you don't want to spend too much money. So I brought out a bag of snacks. And then the lady next to me sees them. And I'm like, oh, this would be so rude not to say, would you like some? And then she goes, oh, yes, I would. And then it begins. <laughs> Where are you going? Why are you going? Okay, okay, I'm in professional Christian ministry. I'm going to a conference where we learn to tell people about Jesus from the Bible. Silence. And then I say, do you have a faith? Or you could do, do you have a faith background? Or what religion do your parents raise you with? And she said, I was raised Catholic. Um, I don't believe it anymore. I go once or twice a year to keep my parents happy. Uh, but in the end, I think all religions are the same and it's all about being spiritual and making a difference. And I went, wow, tell me about that. You know, how did that happen? You were church, you were raised Catholic. Tell me about this journey. And then we get talking. We, we only talk religion now. I think people actually are bursting and want to talk about it if they want to. And it's all about reading the signs. And now you're, they're finding this as a safe person to unload and vent upon. And then so she starts um, saying, so what are your religious services like? And I say, well, what's your experience? When you go to the Catholic church with your parents, what, what's your experience like? Well, she says, by and large, it's really Dull. And I said, oh, well, I'm really sorry to hear that. It doesn't have to be that way. And I'm sure there are many other Catholic churches where it's not like that. But I said, but by and large, if you come to a Protestant service, or I said, well, by and large, if you go to your Catholic church, you notice you have a cross and you have Jesus dead on the cross. So you guys are actually running a funeral. That's why so <laughs> that's why so dead in there. I said, come to one of our churches. Our cross is empty. Jesus is alive. It's actually a celebration that we have a living saviour. She goes, wow, I never thought of that. And then she, and then that's when they start asking questions on anything they want to know. So she said, okay, do you believe um, that we'll rise from the dead? And I said, wow. To answer that, let me tell you what I do believe. I believe Jesus came to us 2,000 years ago as a real human being. And if, you get some, if they're still paying attention, you mentioned that. You say, and he did some amazing stuff, you know, raised a dead girl back to life, gave a blind man his sight. But the most important thing he did was he died for us on a cross. And I don't know how this works, but if you believe in it, this would take away your sin, your guilt and shame. But more than that, he rose from the dead in a bodily form. And one day he'll come again and set up a kingdom here on earth. 
And when that happens, we too will rise from the dead. So yes, I do believe we rise from the dead. So I use this little grid to answer whatever question they ask. When I had the uh, Uber ride to the Afghani restaurant, she asked me, what does the word grace mean? Like, we, I hear all the time, what does the word grace mean? Well, to understand grace, you have to understand that Jesus came to us as a human being 2,000 years ago, did some amazing things while he was here on earth. And if you can get away, mention one, two or three of the things he did. Ah, more than that, he died for us on a cross. And we believe this, this takes away all our sin, guilt and shame. More than that, he rose from the dead and one day you'll set up a kingdom. And so what that means is all these things are a gift from God to us. We don't earn it. It's simply a gift. In the same way, I give gifts to my children. They don't have to be good to earn it. I just give it to them and they just have to enjoy them as a good gift from a good father to enjoy. That's what grace means. And then I was able to explore that on so many levels then. So I find that really helpful. Tell a story about Jesus using uh, a story from the Bible and also using this grid, Manger Cross King. Number four. Last time I came here, I talked about how, number four, we need to learn to tell our story as a story. So I won't rewind too much on what I did there, but I told you how stories have a grid. There's a storytelling grid. I'm going to give that same grid to you now in word form. So every story, everywhere, usually fits this grid. And for you, you basically got to hit these, these talking points. One... I am blank. Two, my mission was, and if I found this, I would be. Three, at first, Four, but then five, but Jesus, six, so, so I, and seven, so now. So let me go through it again. So I am blank. My mission was blank. If I found this, I would be blank. Three at first, blank. But then, blank. Five, but Jesus, blank. Six, so I, blank. Seven, so now, blank. Now, as I explained last time, so if the Uber driver or your friend throws back at you, so how did you become a Christian? And you may want to say, I grew up in a Christian family. I believed in Jesus for as long as I can remember. <laughs> that may be true, but you lost them at the first sentence. They're not listening to anything you say. Instead, they need to see what this faith looks like in the story, the journey of your life, and the ups and downs, crises and resolutions. So I could say, I grew up in a Christian family. I knew Jesus for as long as I can remember. And that will be very true. But I can also say this. I am 
the firstborn child in an Asian family. I'm a high achiever. My mission in life was to become a doctor. If I became a doctor, I would be somebody. So for some people, it could be I would be rich. I, maybe I would have freedom. But for me, it meant I would be somebody. And that's a God-given legitimate desire. So what is a God-given legitimate desire that this would fulfill? I would be somebody. Three, at first, I tried to achieve this mission by studying hard, getting the marks I needed, getting medicine, working as a doctor for four years. But then I found all this high achieving was going to burn me out. It's unsustainable. You can't keep it up for the rest of your life. Um, but Jesus is perfect, so I don't have to be perfect. So yes, I knew Jesus for as long as I can remember. Yes, I prayed to Jesus, but I think I really understood what that meant until there was a time in high school when a chaplain got us to read Romans from chapter to chapter, and I found out, wow, Jesus was perfect, so I don't have to pretend to be perfect. God loves me just the way I am, and I'm somebody because God loves me. So I was able to make this real, and I can explain in further details how at, at, in my late 20s I decided whether to stay in full-time medicine or go into professional Christian ministry. In full-time medicine, I will always be somebody in everyone's eyes. Bank managers want to give you their money. People at parties want to talk to you. They want to show you their rashes. But if I go into <laughs> Christian ministry, bank managers do not want to talk to you. They don't want to give you their money because they're not going to get it back. And, <laughs> and people at parties do not want to talk to you if they find out you're in professional Christian ministry. But I realized, you know what? I don't need medicine to be somebody. I'm somebody because Jesus loves me. So now, so what does this look like for you now? So now, when my old doctor friends catch up with me, they say, I've changed. They say, you don't drive like a jerk anymore. You don't dominate the conversations at dinner parties like you used to. And I thought, wow, being a high achiever actually makes you really proud and insecure. But having Jesus makes you humble and secure. And so that's how I became a Christian. So that's, all, well, that's what Jesus means for me. So I gave this homework to you guys last year in that grid thing. But I think an exercise will be, can you fill out your life in this grid? So using these things. And then that's how you could share the story of how you became a Christian. I'm going up to five, aren't I? Yeah. Five. All right. How do we explain sin in a 21st century, postmodern, post-absolute, post-Christian, post-reached universe? How do we explain sin? And people often ask me, do I have to use the word sin? And I say, it's funny. In every Christian tradition, there'll be what are called shibboleths, badge markers, tribal badge markers where well-meaning Christians are listening in and if you finally say the badge marker word could be sin they go ah he preached the gospel you know <laughs> and, 
and if they don't hear it, oh, he's gone soft on the gospel. John Chapman, this big, big name evangelist in Sydney, he used to say he would preach the gospel and afterwards someone would say, you didn't mention the blood. So apparently that tradition, you had to mention the blood. And I remember another time I spoke at a church and someone comes up to me and says, you didn't use the word repent. I thought, but I did say you've got to chuck a U-turn and stop going the direction you're going in. and go. But I didn't use the word repent. And so often sin can be, I think, our present shibboleth tribal badge marker. Yep, he mentioned it. Preached the gospel. Didn't mention it. Went soft on the gospel. So let me say a few things about sin. Um, I think his name is Francis Spufford. In his book, Unapologetic, and it's a great book because he used to be a liberal atheist and now he's become a Christian. So he's actually written this book, Unapologetic, to explain the Christian gospel to his atheist friends. It's actually designed to be read by atheists. Now, you may or may not agree with everything in that book, but at least know where he's coming from. And he says the word sin has changed its meaning over the years. Just like, just think, you know, dumb has changed its meaning over the years. Or, I don't know, you can think of other words that have changed meanings over the years. Sin has changed meaning. He says for non-Christian, when they hear the word sin, they're not hearing what the Bible says or what a Christian is trying to say by the word sin. They're hearing it's a guilty pleasure that you snuck in like chocolate or ice cream or lingerie. Something to have a little giggle about. So, yeah, go, go, go feel free to use the word sin. But what you say is not what they hear. So you can use the word, but they, I'm, I'm saying go for it. But if you say in a sense, well, they're not hearing what I'm trying to mean by the word sin. How can I do it? Well, think of Jesus. I look at Jesus now. He actually rarely uses the word sin either. But he exposes it. The idea is there, but he exposes it in stories and other things. So to the rich young ruler who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't say, acknowledge you're a sinner, repent and come and follow me. He just says, you know what? Sell everything you have, give it away to the poor and come follow me. And he can't do it. So in other words, he's communicated sin to him. In the parable of the rich fool, the rich fool plants, gets bigger, gets a bumper crop, tears down the old barns, builds bigger barns, says, I'll eat, drink and be merry. God says, you fool. And this is what it would be like for people who store up for themselves and are not rich towards God. Jesus hasn't used the word sin, has he? But he's managed to sneak in the idea in a very different way. Now you're wondering, well, I'm not Jesus, so how can I do this? Well, think of in the Bible how many different ways there are of communicating sin. So you can have the idea that you've um, broken a law. So now you're guilty. So now you need forgiveness. Let me make it justification. Or... You're unclean, so now you need to be purified. Or there's shame, so now you need <coughs> face or honour. We had broken relationship, 
So now you need to be reconciled. Um, Self-righteousness. So now you need to be humbled. Um, idolatry. So now you need to worship the true God. And you can see how we can go on and on and on. I, I always have to stop when I run out of whiteboard space. But you can think we could have, oh, you, you know, you're a slave to sin. Now you need to be set free. We could have you are wandering. So now you need to be found. And you need to discover the way. And we can go on and on and on. Come on, like in your head, you're already thinking, you had dead alive, blind, you can see, we can go on and on and on and on and on and on. Um, but I just got to stop there. So what I'm trying to say is the Bible gives us many ways of entering with the idea of sin. Missiologists and anthropologists say the big three in the world, like almost every culture, every tradition, every tribal group has one of these three ideas of sin. So traditionally in the West, we've understood sin as you've broken a law, you're a rebel, now you need justification, you need to be declared innocent. But in Middle Eastern communities, the big one is being unclean. So you need to be washed, you need to be purified, you need to be made holy. Uh, But in Asian cultures, the big one is shame. And now you need face restored and honour. Um, so let me just go on these ones. Well, let me go with this one. Self-righteousness is another interesting one because the sin in the Gospels, like Luke, the main sin in the Gospels isn't breaking laws, it's self-righteousness. So I want you to imagine Jesus finally in that climactic parable, he tells the parable of the Pharisee, and the tax collector, and the Pharisee's prayer, if he was praying today, would sound like this. Dear God, I thank you I'm not like other men because I have not cheated on my wife. I have not looked at porn. I've been a good father to my kids. I go to Saturday sports. I've not missed a school concert. I go to church twice on Sundays both the family and contemporary service. I give my money to charities, both the tax deductible and the non-tax deductible ones. I declared all my income. And you get the tax collector says, dear God, have mercy on me, you sinner. And Jesus says, that man goes home right with God. Not this one, that man. So now you think, how is this man a sinner? What law has he broken? In fact, he's kept the laws better than you and I. He can brag in a way you and I can't brag. Why is he the one that goes to hell? But this one goes to heaven because his sin is self-righteousness. He lifts himself up to God. So I'm finding this is a really good entry point for sin. Because I say to people, what do you think of when the Bible says sin? What do you think of? i tell you what Jesus thinks of in the book of Luke. This is what sin is for Jesus. You know that feeling you get 
when you go to the supermarket and you have a green eco shopping bag, bag and the person next to you has a plastic one, that feeling is sin according to Jesus. <laughs> You know that feeling you get in your hybrid car and that SUV pulls up next to you? That, Jesus calls that feeling sin. You know that feeling you get when at the end of the year you can put out the perfect Christmas family newsletter? And you see maybe the single parent or the kids who didn't make it into the selective school? Jesus calls that sin. Why would he do that? So I've used that as an entry point for explaining sin. <coughs> Shame. I, I've started using. So now I think we're so post-Western, we can start using Middle Eastern and Asian ideas to communicate sin. Because right now, the, the West sort of no longer believes in absolutes and laws. So guilt is just a social arbitrary construct you're imposing upon me. You're just playing a meta-narrative power game. How dare you? So I've, I... Once a year, I have to speak at a year 12 school-leaving chapel in an elite, private, eastern suburbs girls' high school. I dread it more than my Uber rides because I have nothing in common. They're girls. I'm a guy. They're teenagers. I'm in my 50s. They were eastern suburbs. I'm western suburbs. I've got nothing in common with them. But when I get up, imagine I get up and say to them, okay... Um, you've broken a law, you've broken all the laws, you're guilty, you're a rebel, you need forgiveness. What I'm saying is biblical and true, but they've stopped listening to me, haven't they? They are not listening because I'm the grumpy old man, I'm representing everything they hate about Christianity, and, and yes, I'm playing a power game upon them, imposing my arbitrary social constructs upon them. Instead, I say, there's a God who loves us, who made us, but we don't worship him. We don't honour him. And so there's shame in our life. And I found out using the word shame works right now. People don't dispute it. And more and more non-Christian writers are saying, now that we've left the guilt idea, shame is a new idea. Just look at the public shaming that happens on the internet. So John Ronson, not a Christian, has a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And more and more we're talking about how we actually exist in tribal groups and there's this idea of shame. And people say, now that we got rid of guilt, we actually got rid of forgiveness. So people walk around unforgiven. No one can forgive them now. And your tribal group won't forgive you. And how do you get rid of shame? I say, what? That Jesus forgives. And if he forgives you, you can forgive yourself. So we can offer them something that the world can't offer, and that's forgiveness. Another way of entering is talking about broken relationships and reconciliation and adoption. I have three young boys. My wife and I are clueless. We don't know how to raise them. It's chaos. And so we sign up for parenting seminars, often these non-Christian parenting seminars. And we go, and it can be two or $400 a head. It'll be all Saturday or all Friday, and, and it's packed. They're 3,000 people, usually white-collar professionals, because to afford that, you've got to be a white-collar professional. But it shows everyone out there is hurting. No one knows how to raise children. It's chaos out there. Like, like there's no peace at home, so there's no shalom. There's no, no shalom. And so I've got friends who are, they live in an Islamic neighbourhood, 
and they hear all this fighting coming from the, room, the house next door, the, the apartment next door. So one day, my, my friend deliberately leaves the door open and, and then sees the husband walk by, hey, come in, come in, come in for a drink. So the guy comes in and he says, How, how's it going? And finally, after a while, the guy slumps. He goes, oh, I have no peace, no shalom. And I think most houses are like that. I, I, and so the fact that these parenting seminars are packed, there's no shalom inside houses. Anyway, so Stephen Bidoff, who writes Secrets to a Happy Family or Raising a Family, Manhood, Raising Boys, all of those, he often goes around saying, if you want to be a good father, if you want to be a good partner or husband to your spouse, you've actually got to get, rid, uh, you've actually got to get right with your earthly father first because you're carrying too much baggage that you bring into these other relationships that will make them dysfunctional, you've actually got to get right with your earthly father first. And Stephen Bidoff says, in a room full of 100 Australian men, 30 have not spoken to their fathers in years or decades. They're estranged. In a room full of 100 Australian men, 30 do talk, but it ends badly. Like, words are said, someone storms off. 30 say, I have a warm relationship with my father. We catch up once a week for dinner. And Steve Bidoff says, that's not warm. That's not relational. That's duty. We catch up once a week for dinner. You don't do that with your friends. That's not warm or relational. That's duty or tradition. He says in a room full of 100 Aussie men, 10, maybe less than 10, can say, I have a warm, functional relationship with my father. And Steve Bidoff says, finally, the present generation of Australians get it. This can't go on. And so now everyone... What well, it should be, he says, they, they pick up their phones and they're ringing home. And the dad will pick up on the other end. Hello, son, is that you? Yes, dad, it's me. Do you want to talk to your mother? <laughs> and it's, no, dad, I want to talk to you. And people are looking for reconciliation. And he says, until you get that, you carry too much baggage in the other parts of your life. But then I go on. So, so I then use this talk, and I've spoken from full of 100 CEOs with this talk, and they all just look at me blankly, like they're obviously in this 30 or that 30. And I said, but Steve Bidoff is unrealistic. For most of us, that reconciliation is impossible. Our dads have moved on. Maybe there's been death, disease. Maybe they don't want reconciliation. What do we do? Well, we actually, as much as we need to be right with our earthly father, we have a heavenly father we need to be right with. And we can find reconciliation with him. And we don't have to bring all that baggage into other relationships. So offer them reconciliation. So use that as an entry point. Um, idolatry, slavery. Timothy Keller loves using this one. He words it this way. So listen to the wording. He says, we all have to live for something. If we've got nothing to live for, um, you know... We, got, we all have to live for something, but whatever we live for will own us and it'll be a cruel master. If we find it, it will fail us. If we fail it, it won't forgive us. But if we worship God, if we worship Jesus, he's the kind master we've been looking for. If we live for him, because if we fail him, he'll forgive us. And if we find him, he will fulfill us. 
So, and then Tim Keller uses that uh, and variations of that. So different ways of explaining sin and salvation to our post-Christian 21st century audience. And maybe my final tip, number six, tell a better story. Tell a better story. And I'm getting this, this from a book by Glyn Harrison. Glyn Harrison, Christian psychiatrist from the UK. And his book is about sex and morality and how right now the current view on sex and morality exists because people have told a better story about sex and morality there than what the Christians have been telling. So as Christians, we need to learn to tell a better story than the one we're telling right now. So I'm stealing this phrase from that book, and that book I would recommend reading, but I'm going to take it in a different direction. I'm going to take it this way. If you go to a university campus in Australia, like Brisbane, the first thing you notice will be this. Whoa, there are Asians everywhere. <laughs> There are more Asians here. They're in Asia. What is going on? And then if you go to a Christian group in that university campus, oh my gosh, it's only Asians in here. I'm the only white dude. What is going on? So why has Christianity in its traditional form found so much traction with Asians, Africans, and South Americans. In a way, it's not finding traction with the traditional Western audience. What is going on? Because by and large, as an Asian, if your parents have found Jesus, or if you have found Jesus, life is way better than what it used to be without Jesus. And you thank God your parents found Jesus. So they raised you as a Christian. Because you see what it's like for your Asian friends with non-Christian parents. They're still trapped by superstitious rituals, fears of evil spirits, endless need for success, endless need for status and, and success, uh, symbols of success. And Christianity, if you found it, if you discovered the grace, you think, oh, this is so liberating. This is freedom. Whereas in the Western storyline, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's a complete opposite. So if your parents are de-churched and they don't send you to church, you look at your church friends and think, oh my goodness, life sucks for them. They got to go to church on a Sunday. They got outdated views on sex and morality. I get to sleep in on a Sunday and I get to do whatever makes me happy and chase my dreams. Wow, I'm so glad my parents stopped believing in Jesus. So that's a storyline that's out there right now for the Caucasian audience. So in the Asian audience, we love hearing about Jesus, but it means in the Caucasian audience, which has changed, we need to learn different <coughs> other biblical ways of talking about Jesus. So what I'm finding is... We've always gone hammered the, the forgiveness route, and that's good. And I've mentioned how right now there's no forgiveness, and we can go that way, and we can keep going that way. But often with audiences, that doesn't find traction because they don't think they're guilty in the first place. And there are other benefits 
that the Bible offers. People will say, you can't mention benefits because now you're selling a prosperity gospel. I say, no, no, no. These are the benefits that actually exist in the gospel. We, we were doing it all the time. We just, you know, we're telling people, hey, you'll have eternal life. You'll have heaven. You'll be forgiven. They're benefits. So come on, we're all doing it. We're just offering different benefits right now. So one benefit is purpose. So people actually out there right now without Jesus have no purpose. So I was listening to a podcast this uh, lady in her 20s was saying, oh, you know, our parents were told, well, okay, let me put this one out there. If I was saying to you right now, this is a high school graduation speech, and I put out as my final line, you've got, well, you've got, well, hang on, if I was running a parenting seminar, right, <laughs> your parents, if I said to you, you've got to do whatever makes your children, what would you say? Happy, because I did that in a Chinese church once, and they didn't know what to say. Um, <laughs> successful? I go, no, it's happy. You want your children to be happy. But the funny thing about that is, um, so this lady in the podcast says, well, our parents were told they they had to do everything to be successful, and and they found that dry and unfulfilling, and so then they tell us, you got to do whatever makes you happy. That's the unchallenged axiom of the time. And she said, but at least they got the house. They got the job. We, on the other hand, now we don't know what to do to make ourselves happy. Like, and you keep thinking, is this it? Am I happy now? Or do I have to keep going? Am I happy now? Or do I have to keep going? But we got told you got to do whatever it takes to make you happy. So now we feel guilty for not being happy. And, and bad for not trying hard enough. And we got told, you can be whatever you dream to be. And now that we're not, like, did we not dream enough? Or is that something wrong with us? So people are now realising it's actually not success. It's not happiness. It's purpose. You need a reason to be here. And if you're just atoms and molecules, and if you're just another species of life on this planet, you actually don't need to be here. And maybe if you don't need to be here, you shouldn't be here. You're in the way. You're a nuisance. So unless you find purpose, you actually feel like you're in the way. So I tell people the only way you can find purpose is you've got something bigger than yourself to live for. And Jesus comes with that ultimate <coughs> bigger story to live for. And that's what the gospel gives us. So that's, that's one way I can go. Another way is freedom. Freedom is the unchallenged mantra today as well. And people point out, out what, what's happening is we have elevated autonomy over ontology or reality. So it used to be ontology would trump autonomy, meaning ontology is I am a human being, so even if I want to fly, I can't fly. I'm going against nature. It used to be that way. But now, because of science and technology and a change of worldviews, autonomy trumps ontology. So I'm a human, but I can fly because there's a machine that can make me fly. I'm a male. I shouldn't be able to have a baby, but now they can put a womb in me and I can have a baby if I want to. So autonomy is now the freedom to do whatever I want to do. But that's actually just negative freedom, freedom from constraints. But it doesn't tell me what I'm free to do. 
And that's what Christianity offers us again, because Jesus says, the truth will set you free. So right now, our non-Christian friends are confusing um, autonomy with freedom, but it's making them a slave. Because, you know, Paul says, I'm free to do whatever I want, but I won't be mastered by anything. But what do they choose to live for? We'll own them. And it's a cruel master. So we say, hey, I actually have true freedom, real freedom, and offer it in those sort of terms. And that's what the Asians have discovered. It's there's something liberating about Jesus. And that's what our Caucasian friends need to rediscover. Anyway, I've got a lot more material I can go along with. But let me um, just plug three very important books uh, before I segue into the Q&A. The first one, of course, is my own book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. It only just came out this year. It's called How to Make the Unbelievable News About Jesus More Believable. So everything you heard tonight and last year fits in just one chapter in here, and there are 10 other chapters or something like that. So I'm like, whoa, how good must this book be, hey? <laughs> it's on tap, mate. <laughs> that's right, it's on tap. It's reduced to $20 for the hardcover. $20 for the hardcover, that's amazing. Now, so the story behind this is uh, I, I used to teach at a Bible college that Lee was at, and I used to teach theology, preaching, some other subjects, and John Chapman used to teach evangelism, and then John Chapman decided to retire, and so the principal says, I want you to take over from John Chapman and teach evangelism. And I said, no, I'm not doing that because John Chapman is John Chapman. He's amazing. I can't fill those shoes. That would be wrong. I'm not doing it. And I find, yes, I finally said no. Like I wasn't the, the, the doormat Asian who says yes to everything. Finally, I stood up. The principal said no. But the next day, I hear these footsteps, boom, 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 and it's John Chapman running up the stairs, charges into my office, and he grabs a big fold of his notes on evangelism, boom, dumps them on my desk, says, brother, you're now teaching evangelism. <laughs> so I wasn't asked, I was assigned, it was compulsory for me, so you know, you think students, you've got compulsory subjects, us lecturers have it too, we get forced to teach things we don't want to teach. Anyway, so then I thought... Where do I begin? Because John Chapman's notes are illegible. We've got 15 <laughs> weeks to come up with material. And I thought, you know what? Let's pretend we're missionaries. Let's pretend Australia is unreached, because it may as well be. It's post-reached, post-Christian. What would missionaries do to reach Australia? So using the tools of missiology, cultural analysis, and storytelling, uh, how can we tell our friends about Jesus? So that's what this book is on, uh, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. I need to come out this year. A lot of our context is at, is at work, so you're probably thinking, how do I tell my friends, my family, my work colleagues about Jesus? Because I spend probably 90% of my waking life at work, and probably that's where all my non-Christian contacts are increasingly coming from, from at work. But how do you tell work colleagues about Jesus? Well, there's a one, word, well, one phrase answer, City Bible Forum. That's why we exist. City Bible Forum is helping people. Uh, tell their friends about Jesus in the workplace. And the guy who planned at City Bible Forum is Craig Josling about 20 years ago. And now Craig this year has come out with his book called 40 Rockets, uh, Encouragement and Tips for Turbocharging Your Evangelism at Work. 40 Rockets because it's like 40 one-page tips on how to tell your friends about Jesus at work. 40 Rockets. And the money supports City Bible Forum, which supports me. All right. <laughs> And finally, in this book, Telling the Gospel Through Story, they estimate that 80% of Western Australian, Westernised Australians are concrete relational learners. 
and 90% of the non-Western world are concrete relational learners. What is a concrete relational learner? So, when I studied medicine, I spent five years at university doing lectures on biochem, chemistry, physics. I learned the anatomy of a snail, an oyster. Uh, I had to do statistics. Whoa. And then, five years later, I see my first patient. That's called abstract learning, where you begin with a theory, and then you're meant to discover the practice. But let's say you're a tradie. You spend all day on the work site, banging in nails, working with wood, and then at night you go to a class where they teach you about the theory of wood. There are two schools of thought here. There's a classical and a progressive school on, on wood. No, they don't do that, but you can imagine. <laughs> what nail did I use today? But that is called concrete relational learning. You begin with a practice, and then you work out the theory. Interesting thing here, if I gave you guys a brand new plasma TV, because it's come back in, but now it's smart, and it can get on the web, and it can run your fridge and your phone from this TV, who here would just turn it on and not read the manual? <laughs> who here would read the manual first? All right, all right, all right. Okay, so it always works. Almost 80% of you said, I'll just turn on the TV first. You're a concrete relational learner. You start with a practice and then you consult the theory. 20% of you had to begin with the theory. You had to read the book, right? That's abstract learning. So most of us can do abstract learning, but we were forced to do it kicking and screaming because that's what they forced down our throats, okay? Well, where am I going with this? We still use abstract learning to tell people the gospel. We're actually going against the mother tongue of 80% of Australians. But if we begin with story and then go theory, so once a year I take one for the team. I, I'm the speaker at a crusader ski camp where I have to do the... Well, well, the good bit is I get to stay on snow, I get to ski, I take my family there, but the bad bit is... I had to tell high schoolers about Jesus at lunchtime. Do you think they want to hear about Jesus at lunchtime <laughs> after they've been skiing all morning and then going to have free skiing in the afternoon with their buddies and now they're in this trapped, steamy room and this bozo is going to tell them about Jesus? How do I do it? I've done it for five years in a row using this method. I tell them stories about Jesus from the Bible and they can't wait for the next story. They're always in the chairlift going, what story are we doing next? What story are we doing next? And in the chairlifts, I get to ask them questions. What did you think about the story? Tell me something that stood out for you in the story. Uh, so gospel, uh, Telling the Gospel Through Story by Christine Dillon. Let me recommend that one as well. So, in the, so once again, my book, very important. Craig Johnson's book, Pays My Employer. And this book, because that's the heart language of most people. Lee. Oh, it's question time, isn't it? How are we going to do that? They're texting well, you, are they? There could be text, but don't expect them. All right. I don't know if they have a lot of questions up there. The, uh, let's, let's just open this up now for questions for Sam for the next 15 minutes or so, if we last that long. Are there any questions? Yes. Mm. Thirty plus years actually hasn't worked. I've got a few clues from what you've been saying tonight, but it's really hard. Yeah. So the question for those up the back: 
How, how do we tell the gospel to a family member, like a husband, when we've been trying for the last 30 years? And, and uh, friends and family, a unique challenge. So I learned this from Andrew Caday, and he pointed this out to me. <coughs> There's actually a spectrum of ways we tell the gospel. There's actually a spectrum. They're down this end, this is the public speaking. Here is the stranger on a train, on a plane, on Uber. And this one is family and maybe friends. And they're different circumstances, right? And public speaking, I monologue for 20 minutes. So at City Bible Forum, if you're a non-believer and you're unfortunate enough to turn up to one of my talks, you think, oh my gosh, that dude just monologued at me. Maybe there was Q&A afterwards where I sort of got a voice in. But really, it's... Um, so what would I say? Words are really 100% of the evangelism event because I monologue for 20 minutes. They didn't get a word in and my life is 0% because they don't know me. They know very little about me uh, apart from what I give away in the talk. The stranger on a plane or train, my words are going to be actually less than 50%. They're going to do most of the talking. And I'm just going to get the odd word in. So my words are now only 50%. It's a back forth, back forth. They get one minute, I get one minute, they get one minute, I get one minute. And my life, oh, they're still not going to know much about my life. They're going to know I'm married, I've got kids, I brew beer. But, you know, they're not going to know much apart from whether I was polite to the flight attendant, that they pick up those little social cues. But with friends and family, oh my gosh, it probably is words, only 1% of the evangelism event, and your life now becomes 100%. And so it's unfair to make people feel guilty for not doing this in this context, because it's a different context. And it's interesting, the Bible gives a few little hints on what to do with unbelieving family members, unbelieving spouses. So in 1 Corinthians, where it gives permission uh, to let the non-believing partner leave or separate, Paul actually says, you know, after a while, you can only say so much. So that's what Paul says. Like, do you think your words can really change their heart? So after a while, you just got to acknowledge, okay, my words can only do so much. I've done what I can. I'll, I'll let God do the rest. And then in 1 Peter, it says to people with unbelieving spouses, um, you can win them over without words, because really that's what you're only allowed to do almost. They're not listening. There's nothing new you're going to be able to say to them that they haven't heard in the last 10 or 20 years or 30 years. So really, it's your life now that counts. So let's explore this further. Let's explore this further. <coughs> I'm going to appropriate something I learned from family systems theory. So they're, they're counsellors, family systems theory. Where you've got to learn almost just two things to ask yourself. Um, what is in my control and what am I responsible for? What is under my control? What am I responsible for? 
So if you play sport, the most brutal form of defense is man-on-man -man defense. That's your opponent, you're there, you're marking them, you stay on them for the whole game. It's a very brutal form of defense because it's very unsustainable. You can't stay on the guy for the whole game. So most forms of sports develop zone defense. When someone comes into my zone, I will mark them. When they leave my zone, I am not responsible for them anymore and I can't control what happens in the next zone. But I can control what happens in my zone and I am responsible for what happens in my zone. So I go to a church where in the morning all the congregations spill out on the lawn for morning tea. So there's probably like four, six hundred people on this morning tea lawn. I've got three little boys. I could play man on man with them, but it's unsustainable. So I just zone. I say, this is my zone. When they come in here, I'm responsible for them. But when they leave, nah, someone else's. <laughs> so I, I zone with my boys. And evangelism, you've got to say, what, am I, what is under my control and what am I responsible for? And I shouldn't beat myself up for something I can't control and that I'm not responsible for. And in family systems theory, they talk about this in the language of um, investment and functioning. So here you're over too much. Here you're under, not enough. So Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, just right. We're looking for the Goldilocks position in the middle. So let's say my duty is to stack the dishwasher at night. If I don't stack the dishwasher, I'm under-investing and I'm under-functioning as a husband. And that forces my wife out of her Goldilocks position because now she has to stack the dishwasher. Now there's stress. Because I underfunction, it forced her to overfunction. Are you with me? But if I stack the dishwasher and she comes along afterwards and restacks it after me, <laughs> she's overfunctioning and it forces me to underfunction. I think, well, you're going to be like that. I'm just not going to do it at all, which is where I've been for the last 21 years of my marriage. <laughs> So what am I saying here? So when it comes to evangelism, especially with family members, what is under my control? What am I responsible for? What is under God's control? What is God responsible for? My responsibility really is to live that life and, and to realise words can only do so much and, and pray, not just for their heart, but pray that God will lead another Christian peer into their life because that's what's going to do it. Uh, uh, another Christian wandering into their life. Can I just keep going just a bit more? All right, sorry, sorry. And if ethics has been the barrier to belief, so ethics has become the barrier to belief, because most people out there think we, we're the bad guys, we're the immoral guys, uh, we're the ones doing the wrong things when it comes to airing sex, morality, abortion, contraception, everything, right? So ethics is the barrier to belief. I think wisdom is the entry point to belief now. So it used to be we say, hey, this is true, believe it. If you believe it now, do it. But I think now it goes the other way around. If what we have is doable, maybe what we have is believable, 
And if it's believable, maybe it's true. So people notice that there's a wisdom in the Christian way. They just don't want to acknowledge yet, but they'll say, actually, the Christian way works better for family, for work, for leisure, for wealth. It works better. It's going to be more believable. And if it's more believable, maybe it's true. So I think that's what the Bible is saying. You can win them over with your life, not, not just with your words. And, you know, so I work as a surgical assistant and I see the lives of my surgeons. I envy their life. Like, I really do. They get to do knockdown rebuilds in the glamour suburbs of Sydney. They, get, they fly business class. They get to put their kids in elite private schools. They have overseas holidays. They own multiple property all over Sydney. And I actually think, oh, you know, when I gave up medicine for Jesus, did I give up too much? That's often what I feel. But then now I'm in my 50s. Most of the surgeons I work with are now separated from their spouses. Their kids won't talk to them. And I think, you know what? My way works. It's doable. Because I've been reading the book of Proverbs. That's all with the wisdom on, on how to raise family, how to be faithful to your spouse, how to manage work, how to manage wealth, how to manage success. What we have is doable. People, after all, are going to realize, actually, it's believable. And if it's believable, maybe, maybe it's true. So that, that's the entry point to belief. I've got a question that's from, uh, from Mackay, actually, that I think is mm -hmm. a good one. Sure. Uh, so he's saying, Sam, so it's essentially around um, your presenting, say, how to present stories of Jesus to yeah. the ski camp. Um, there'd be people here probably thinking, man, no one listens to my stories anyway. Can I do it in a way that's going to work? So what we've got here is, Sam, you're clearly an expert faith sharer. There you go. How bad were you when you started out? How long did it take to get past bad? <laughs> oh, okay. I guess, how would I put it? Like, we're all obviously bad at it. Like, come on, we're all bad at it. But some are better than others, right? But I, but I think we're always going to be our worst critics as well. So from wherever where we are, it always looks bad. Because that's our, we have no reference point. So it always feels bad. And we're judging with all the wrong criteria when maybe it's way better than we think. So how would I put this? Like, um, uh, people, I often do get this question and they say, share your worst evangelism moment. So that's a variation. And actually, that's the one that always stumps me. I don't think I've had a bad evangelistic moment. Like I've had a Muslim taxi driver screaming at me, but I thought, well, you know, what, what was under my control? What am I responsible for? He's the one screaming, not me. So I don't know. Like, like, so I wouldn't see that as bad. And then I have a friend, Natalie, who's a Christian, and she said, wherever you go, I want you to share this story. You've got to share this story. Because she was studying occupational therapy, and this guy in the class kept trying to hit on her and would say, do you want to join my church for Bible study? She goes, no, because she wasn't a Christian. Uh, do you want to join my church for Bible study? She goes, no. Uh, and then finally she goes, listen, just to shut you up, what's the name of your church? What's the address? She writes it down. There, I've got it. If I ever need it, I'll go by myself. Just leave me alone. Years go by. One day she goes through a crisis. She thinks, you know, I, 
I need God. I need to be spiritual. Where do I find that? Oh, I need a church. Where do I find a church? Oh, I've got the address written down. So she turns up to my church, it was. So I actually know the guy who was trying to hit on her. And, <laughs> and then she turns up, and afterwards people welcome her because she's a newcomer. And then they say, hey, listen, it's January. There's a conference going on. Come join us for the conference. She goes. She hears the gospel. She believes. So she says there is actually no... Your motives might be wrong. Your method might be wrong. But you'd be amazed. I have another friend called Andrew. He said, I want you to share this story. Billy Graham had a crusade. Not the 70s one because it went really well. Not the 50s, 60s one, but that went really well. There was the one where he was... His last one, where he was too weak to travel, so they just satellited it, you know, on these TVs. This was before streaming technology is as good as it is. So my friend Andrew invites his non-Christian friend to come here, Billy Graham, and so they're sitting there watching a small TV screen in Sydney, watching Billy Graham preach somewhere else in the rest of the world. By now, Billy's old, frail. He's got Parkinson's disease that robs you of non-verbal communication and it's an old school bible talk and at the end billy says you know wherever you are you know just get out of seat come forward and give your life to jesus and andrew sees his friend get up go forward and kneel in front of the tv and give his life to jesus so again what we judge as bad may not be as bad as we think it is and paul in philippians says hey there are all these people that preach the gospel out of wrong motives who cares? The gospel's being preached. So even if you're doing it for the wrong reason, it's good evangelism. Well, okay, to a point. <laughs> <laughs> questions here. I've got one from Aikenville and in Townsville. That might be nearly it, unless other people are jumping up. And it was about, could you... Sorry, it's here. Could... Oh, you, you talked in part two about telling a story about Jesus and they just asked, could you unpack that a little more? Yeah, so let me preface it. If you really want to explore the storytelling thing, go to Vimeo, go to YouTube, just search Sam Chan Storytelling. And there's a 40-minute sample of what I do. Also read Christine Dillon's book or go to her website, Storytelling. The scriptures.com. But what I do is, and there's no one way to do it. Everyone has their way. So you've got to discover your, your way. Don't say, oh, Sam said to do it this way. I must do it. It's not working, but Sam said I had to do it this way. Now, discover your own way. But this is how I do it. I get up, if it was a monologue situation, if it was a public speaking context, if it was like the high schoolers at a crusader camp, I say, I'm going to tell a story to you from the Bible, from eyewitness accounts who were alive around Jesus' time. I'm going to tell the story three times. The first time, I just want you to imagine the story. Second time, I want you to remember the story because the third time, you're going to help me retell the story. And so then I, I might begin the story. And then, and then they're listening trying to imagine it. Second time, I get them to remember it. And the third time, they helped me retell the story. So I would say, there was a religious leader 
in the town and he invited Jesus to his place for, anyone shared to him, for dinner. And there was a woman in the town who was known to be a, they yelled, sinner, who also heard and she went and she also brought with her a jar of, and they go, perfume. And then, they, they, and then uh, after a while, they, they're not as like, oh, come on, guys, give it up, give it up. And then, I, and then they say, give yourselves a hand. That is the best retelling I've ever heard. And then, usually by the end of the week, sincerity, if you can fake it, uh, you'll be perfect for Christian ministry. And, and what it is, it is the best I've ever heard until the next year and the following year. And, and, then, and then by the end of the week, I say, oh, listen, we're going to do something we haven't done before. The fourth time, I'm going to get you to retell it to each other. And by now they can. Oh, and who feels brave enough having a go by themselves? So someone might get up and go. And I said, you can't keep going. We'll take over. And someone always gives it a go. Two years ago, we had a Jewish kid come along to our Christian ski camp. He goes to a Jewish Hasidic school and he hates it because his parents have forced religion down his throat. He just wants to grow up like a normal Aussie. He's in a Jewish religious school and now he's at a crusade, a Christian ski camp. What is going on? On the day five, he's the one that gave it a go and, and retold the story in front of everyone. And at the end of the week, he said, that was the best religious education week I've ever had. Anyway, so you retell the story. They retell it to you. Then I say... Uh, well, usually I leave it at that, but then we break up into small groups afterwards. And then, then you just ask some questions, like, um, what questions do you have? Or what don't you understand? Or with non-Western audiences, you say, what might people not understand? Because no one wants to say they're the guy who didn't understand. <laughs> so what questions do you have? And that's a safe question, because um, there's no wrong question. So something there was, there are no wrong answers. And you don't, don't try to answer the questions, because otherwise you become the all-knowing expert, and that stops them talking. The next one is, um, what stood out in the story to you? Like, what's something that, wow, that stands out, something like that. Number three, what do you think this teaches you about God or Jesus? What do you think this teaches you about people in general? <laughs> or the people in the story. And finally, what do you think God, if this story is true, is trying to tell you through this story? So there are the discussions. Notice you can't get this wrong, you can't get this wrong. If they get this wrong, it sort of gets self-corrected as they hear the answers from the other people. They go, oh, okay. Maybe it does say that about Jesus. I didn't pick that up. And I do this all the time. And I still learn new things because people bring a different perspective from where they are and they bring out things in the story. I thought, wow, I had never thought of that in that story before. So you know the story where Jesus raises a dead girl back to life and the religious leader is Jairus. And then Jesus says at the end, shh, he told the parents, don't tell anyone about this. And then I had this indigenous Christian leader in one of these things and he said, what he picked up out of that story was, how do you cancel a funeral that's been going for days and days and days? Because <laughs> we're used to our Western funerals where, where we're time-based. Okay, it's got, let's get over within 30 minutes. But their ones went on for days and days and days. How do you cancel a funeral? How do you explain what happened without telling anyone? Like, so that's what he... And he I never thought of that. You know, like... And that, that, oh, someone else picked up something. And it was that, you know, usually when I say Jairus... 
the religious leader, because I soften it, the religious leader, because no one's going to know what a synagogue is. But, but in, the, in the text, he actually falls at Jesus' feet. And then I just did an Israel tour just last month. And I realized in every city is the synagogue. And for the leader of the synagogue to come to Jesus and fall at his feet is an amazing thing. And we probably just skim over that because we're just re- thinking it's a small detail. But you pick up details. Uh, can I say one more thing? Oh, there's one more detail. Like, you won't pick this up until you do the storytelling. Th- these are things you miss. So the man who has the demons cast out of him in the Decapolis, Jesus tells him to go, like, like go tell your friends and family what God has done for you. So then the story goes, so the man went and told what Jesus had done for him. Just these little subtle links. Also in Acts 16, where the jailer um, gets converted and his family gets baptised, all of, he had come to believe, he got told he had to believe in Jesus to be saved, call on the name of Jesus to be saved, and the story ends by him saying, and the jailer and his family rejoiced that night because they had come to believe in God. They're just very subtle little things that you pick up in storytelling that we miss in our abstract preaching. Okay, uh, I think we'll pull it up there because um, we want to be done here by nine. Um, thank you very much for coming. I just want to do a couple of things in finishing. We'll, 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 I'll get off we'll this. clap you now. Okay, <laughs> so I can get off this thing. I'll swap. You can... I want to thank uh, Derek Griffin, who's, who's beaming this around the globe at the moment, for his time here tonight. I'd also like to thank the Wandering Bookseller. So if you do want to buy some of these books, you'll find John, John. Manning, Manning yep. right? Uh, out the back That's of the lobby. Here he is. The only guy who came well-dressed tonight. And he's... Uh, so find John. Um, can I just remind you that if you are interested in that idea of the Trinity on tap, you go out this way, and there's just a few books you can have a look at. Can't take them with you, but um, sign your details, and they'll turn up in the mail one day when they're ready. Uh, we'd love you to do that, and that includes people who are listening to this elsewhere. Um, send us an email. I'm talking to them. It's so weird in the uh, virtual world, isn't it? Is that the virtual world? <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, Sam. Sam, I've got a present down here. Oh, you're wonderful. Do you have a present? That's... Uh, it's a uh, lemonade. And, uh, how about I just close in prayer for us and we'll see you later. Lord God, we thank you for what we've heard. Um, we ask that you would give us humility when we, when we uh, share our faith with others, to listen, to understand, uh, but that your spirit would give us the words to speak. Uh, we pray uh, that we would remember that we can't do anything perfectly, uh, but that wouldn't stop us uh, from continuing to do this or to at least start. Uh, We pray for the church and your people here in Australia and around the world, but mostly where we are just now at least, that there would be a culture among us of telling others about you, to give people purpose, to release people from shame, uh, to give people forgiveness. Amen.